electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. and I are working together, I don't want to take advantage of you. I really don't, because you're smart. And so if I, if we do something together and I get 80% of the value and you get 20%, why would you ever deal with me again? Tom Steyer became a billionaire by solving puzzles. That wasn't his technical job description. He actually founded Farallon Capital, a hedge fund in San Francisco 30 years ago. As an investor, two signature moves of his stand out. One, he got his alma mater, Yale, to invest a portion of its endowment with him. The success of that arrangement sparked a trend. Two, he made his own luck, often by investing deeply in countries and industries. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play, and once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are definitely conversation starters. As Styers scouted unusual investments in unexpected places, he followed some basic rules. And now that Tom Steyer has set his sights on politics and policy, he's rumored to be considering a run for California governor. I sat down with him for Fort Knox. He gave me some of his best insights on how to succeed and why he's fighting the new administration in Washington, D.C. Here's Tom Steyer. First off, give me the give me the backstory behind why you decided to pivot off of a kind of a laser focus on climate and take on uh, this post-election anti-Trump agenda writ large. Well, John, our mission statement for NextGen started as to act politically to prevent climate disaster and to promote prosperity for every American. So from the very beginning, we've known that the idea of separating out climate, of siloing it away from the interests and the needs of American citizens is always a mistake. So from the very beginning, we knew that you've got to put that in a context where we can show that it creates good paying jobs, more good paying jobs, where it cleans the air so that people have better health so their lives are better. What happened in 20, on November 8, 2016 is the success of an all out attack on the traditional rights, the basic rights of Americans. And we realized that not only was it impossible to separate climate from the huge economic implications of energy throughout our society, that also is it going to be impossible to get the kind of changes and the kind of direction that we need without also facing the fact that we were, that American civil liberties were under attack and that if they were, if that attack was successful, that everything else would fall before it too, including climate. So which basic rights are under focused on that are 
because there are so many. Because you say, yeah, which ones? Because I mean, you got a lot of money, but you you also want to have an impact. So is there a kind of a, uh, a hierarchy. ranking and a hierarchy of what you're focused on? Well, if you think about the rights of Americans, I mean, you start with the right to vote. And you can see this administration lining up, setting itself up for not just a continuation of voter suppression, an attempt to prevent Americans from exercising their constitutional right to vote, but for expanding that very dramatically. So you're talking about those tweets, comments from President Trump. All the three million, fraud, million voter fraud. And you can see that there was no there's absolutely no truth to that. That was a, a fake. But it's the setup for, go for further voter suppression by people who don't believe in a broad democracy. Don't believe that. We, one of the things we believe most strongly is the broadest democracy with the greatest participation not only comes up with the fairest, most just outcomes, they're also the best outcomes in every way. And that's what all the research says is the broadest group of people come up with the best decisions. They're trying to do the exact opposite. They're trying to limit it and prevent people from voting who have every right to vote. So you start with the number one right of Americans, the right to vote, and you go on from there. The attack on the free press. Okay, yeah, we felt that. Yes, there's gonna be a continued attempt to create a, an alternative set of facts to prevent basic facts from being either put forth or believed. So one of the things that I thought was, it's so bad it's funny, is the idea that every scientific fact would have to be vetted by a political person before it could be put forth. That is an idea that is so repulsive, so reminiscent of Stalin, that it, I mean, if it weren't true, you'd have to laugh at it. But there is an attempt right there to create a world where nothing is true unless it serves our political purpose. And, and the point of that is there can be no facts that happen to be true that point out the lies they're telling. They have to prevent that. So when you think about an attack on Americans' rights, you know, here we go. <laughs> so let's back up for a moment and talk about um, your career prior to this point. How did you get to this station, this point where uh, you're able to make some decisions about where to put resources, how to influence policy, um, which issues are important to you? Talk about when you got out of college, where did you go? What did you do? So, you know, I would say growing up, I'm from a family that had a very naive belief and deep-seated belief in the American system that it would work, that the people involved in government were honest and doing it from the highest impulses. And what was that belief rooted in? I think it's, you know, the, I think my parents were depression babies. My father was born in 1918. My mother was born in 1924. So they were, you know, teenagers in the Depression. My father was in World War II. My uncles were in World War II. So they came from a time where they came from extreme privation as a country, and then a lot of physical threat to their generation in terms of the war to success. Yeah. 
and they believed in kind of the broad sweep of American progress. Where'd and your parents grow up? My mom is, was from Minneapolis and my dad was from Brooklyn. And so my mom moved to New York the oh, wow. day she graduated from college, <laughs> you know, infuriating her parents who wanted her to come home. But she wanted to come to, you know, the most exciting city in the world and she wanted to live in a diverse place where there was all kinds of stuff going on and she could be exposed to a really broad, you know, experience in every way. And so my parents were extreme New York lovers. <laughs> they were. And how did they meet? My so my mom was in the news business. My mom wrote for Newsweek, then she wrote for the NBC Evening News, and then she produced the NBC Evening News. I mean, back at the time, that was not... It was a fledgling business. Yeah. And so she was right in the beginning, and she was making no money. So my father was a lawyer, and uh, the, there was a lawyer from Minneapolis who came out here to work with my father on some case. Mm -hmm. And they were going out to dinner after working and he said, would you mind, I have a friend from home who makes no money and she'd appreciate a free meal, I'm sure. <laughs> Which was my mother, <laughs> that's how they met. Wow. Was they were introduced by this guy that my dad was working for, with, with for, from Minneapolis, and who'd grown up with my mom. And this is after World War II, so yeah. your dad is, is working as a lawyer. Did, did that sort of uh, sense that the United States is going to do the right thing, even if it's at great cost, sort of, uh, you think, deeply influence that generation? Is that where some of that... Well, it was not just that, but that was part of it. It was also their belief in how it was going to be done. So for instance, you know, my parents were shocked when it turned out that Richard Nixon was a liar. They couldn't believe the, even the idea that the president of the, of the United States was going to lie to the American people. Couldn't believe it. How old were you at the time? So I think if Watergate was somewhere around 1972, I was around 15. And so I watched the Watergate hearings with my parents and they couldn't have been, I think like a lot of Americans, they couldn't have been more upset at the idea of what was going on and the idea that there were people kind of plotting how to get what they want, not by telling the truth. Right. So they were incredulous, but they did believe it. They believed what was they, being reported. They looked at the facts. The, they looked at the facts. Yes. And they were appalled. They were extremely angry about it. Did that experience, that event, have an impact on a teenage Tom Steyer? I mean, I, high school, I remember the stuff that I read and saw had a big impact on the way I see the world. Well, what I really know, you know, what I took from my parents was actually their belief in being straightforward and honest. I mean, the, what I took from that was you know, wow, okay, let's accept the fact that politicians are gonna lie sometimes, but that doesn't make it okay. And so, you know, they came from a time with very straightforward rules of behavior. It's, you know, it's kind of, really, you're lying? Not, it's not okay. And it's not like, it's not okay right now, but tomorrow we're gonna forget it. It's not okay. Right, a journalist and We're a done. Uh, I imagine there was a pretty big adherence well, you know, to the fact. Well, you know, as a journalist, I would say this. <laughs> my mom believed that the free press was, uh, you know, almost a sacred obligation in a democracy. 
And so she took it extremely seriously. She viewed the news as performing an essential societal function of informing and engaging citizens. And so she, the whole idea of turning it into a profit center or you know, looking at it as a business, she viewed it as a calling, right. no question. And, and she, she viewed that function as you know, having extreme value and therefore to be protected really zealously. So you grew up in New York in yep. the 60s? Yeah. Siblings? Two older brothers, really mean, really, really mean. <laughs> Not intelligent either. <laughs> well, with older brothers, I imagine you grew up kind of tough and in New York in the 60s, yes? You know, I, it's funny, in all seriousness, John, and you know this too from living in New York, there are tough people I don't view myself as a tough person. I know that there are real tough people in this world. I try and be straightforward and get along with people. So you, as a teenager in uh, the 70s, eventually uh, moved beyond high school. Where do you go to school? What, what influences your decision on where to go and what to study? Well, you know, it was actually, it, I, I look back and I, I didn't, there wasn't as much emphasis in those days in terms of figuring out your path. It, it, I don't think at any stage along the way did we put in the kind of thought and analysis and research and strategizing that the kids, my kids' age, who are between right now between the ages of 23 and 28, put in. You know, I basically, I went to Yale College and I, why did I go? Not sure. <laughs> did you know people it, who went there? I knew some, but not really. I went because it was, I thought it was a good school. And what that meant, I'm not sure I knew. Because it was, you know, it's sort of famous. Uh -huh. And so I thought, I'll go to a school that it, it has a reputation for being a great school. And I don't think it was that much more complicated. Well, I mean, these days, people don't sort of accidentally end up at Yale. I mean, people try really hard and maybe get there. Well, I will say this. I had, you know, I don't, everyone talks about how hard the kids work today. I think the kids of our generation worked hard. I, you know, worked hard. I did my homework. I tried. I wasn't, but it wasn't something where I was thinking, okay, this will get me into Yale. I'll join this club or I'll build my resume. I basically did the stuff that I, you know, I played a lot of sports. I didn't play sports. I wished I'd gotten recruited to play sports and I played sports all through college. I, I was the captain of the Yale soccer team. Okay. But I walked onto the Yale soccer team. And, you know, I thought, I love sports. I'm playing sports because this is super, super fun, and I love doing this. But it never—that isn't how I got into school, or nor was it while I was playing. Why I was playing sports? I was just playing sports for the fun of it, and I studied things that I was interested in, not because I thought they led to a career or being smart about it. It was just I want to know that. So what did you study? I was an econ poli sci major. You know, so I wanted to learn about how economic systems worked and how it worked with democracy and why democracy, how democracy stacked up against other systems and what the strengths were of private enterprise. At that point, you know, you th I'm class of 1979, Soviet Union in full swing. Right. So I wanted to understand how does our system stack up against all the other systems that were in effect in competition with so I could understand the strengths of each. Uh, a lot of political foment on campus uh, about whether to have this or that speaker show up. A little bit, not that much. You know, the, the 
I think that, you know, right now there's some uh, question on the West Coast in particular, where I'm at from, Berkeley. about at Berkeley, about having a, someone, I haven't read his writings, but who's accused of being a racist, uh -huh. showing up and being permitted to speak there. And, you know, we had a couple of incidents like that when I was a student, and, you know, one of them, which I was involved with, where I felt like, you have a right to free speech. You don't have a right to a podium at a major university. So yes, you have a right to put out your awful views, but you don't have a right to be promoted by a great university, and I'm opposed to that. Um, so after that, your first jobs, um, do you come back to New York and, and target Wall Street since it's... Look, it, it's funny politics? because I did. And, and you know, it wasn't like me being smart. It was kind of, I need a job that will let me pay the rent <laughs> and buy some food. Right. And honestly, I think in, the, in those days, no one had a clue what they were going to do. And so my dad worked in New York. He said they're starting, they were just starting hiring people out of college to work at some of these Wall Street firms. And so he said, you know, they have a program. Why don't you just apply and see what happens? So I applied, they offered me a job. It was the only job offer I had, so I took it. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, I'm employed. And what do they have you doing? I was doing, you know, financial research. So I was, in those days, it was, the firms were really, really small. Believe it or not, I was one of the more talented people in running the computer. And the computer was a huge machine with cards that would go and But I was, you know, one of the people who was able to program the computer. So my job was basically to run financial models to show what, what the future of company, you know, to basically to lay out, you know, a projection of how a company was going to do. So then 10 years later, 1990, what are you doing? God, 1990, I started my own investment firm. I was living in San Francisco, California. You know, we were, at that point, I was independent, working for myself, investing around the world, and thinking all the time, you know, what drives a company, what drives an industry, what drives a region, what drives a country, what moves the global economy. What are the most important two or three things that you learned in that 10 years that got you from A, I'm not even gonna say to B, that's like from A to J at least. In terms of fundamental economics? Well, in terms of how to manage your career, how you treat people, how you work with teams, <laughs> what it takes to start your own okay. game versus working for somebody else's. Well, let's start with my real business philosophy always was fair relationships. So I always felt like if you and I are working together, I don't want to take advantage of you. I really don't because you're smart. And so if, I, if we do something together and I get 80% of the value and you get 20%, why would you ever deal with me again? What I want to do is do 25 things together where we each go 50-50 and where we don't have to fight each other. We spend all of our time trying to make the whole pie as big as possible and no time fighting about how to slice it up because it's hard enough to, bit, to bake a beautiful pie. So if we can bake 
25 beautiful pies and split them 50-50. That's a heck of a lot better than baking one or two pies where after which you go, you know what, Tom? We're not in the pie business anymore together. So that our, our, our focus was find really good, honest people, have a fair relation and transparent relationship with them for a really long time. Now, Wall Street in the 80s did not have a reputation for that being the dominant philosophy. No, it didn't. But you know what? If you look at, this is the exact opposite of Donald Trump. Donald Trump would say, here's the deal, and then after, when you'd done your work, he'd say, I'm not paying you. Sue me. He has 2,500 lawsuits of people he's stiffed. Right. I can't understand. I, you know, if you think about what I said about my parents, if you said, if you did that to my parents one time, or they heard that someone had done that, that you'd done that to somebody else, they would be like, you know what? Don't bother talking to me. There's nothing we have to say to you. And, that, and my attitude is, really, if you think about things long-term, the way to think about it is, are we gonna have one interaction that is anonymous, that no one else will ever know about? Or are we gonna have 25 interactions that are open and transparent? And if you think that life is one anonymous interaction, then it's like, you know what? I'll slit your throat, it's fine. <laughs> but if you think that life is what it is, which is, you know, you, your life doesn't end, what happens between us is gonna be reflected in what happens between you and everybody else and me and everybody else, then you actually, it's not only the right thing to do, that's the best way to run a business. You look at, that is how you actually produce things and grow things, is not by being in a fist fight with your partners every day, but by having a team that's working together to get something done together in a good way and not fighting each other. When Donald Trump is president of the United States, which he is at this second, a lot of people say, well, it's a rough world and that works, however you might feel about it. That's not true. People are concerned that kids are going to get this message. It's a terrible message and it's a lie. One of the things, and you, I, I'm sure you know this too, I always laugh because in business, in strategy, and in life. If, if, if I think, you know what, and I used to say this about my brothers, if I walked into my bedroom, which I shared with my brother, and punched him in the face and thought it was over right there, it's like, no, that's not the end. That's the beginning. <laughs> you sound like you're speaking from experience. It's true. If you disrespect Mexico, if you treat them as subservient and lesser, if, if you think that that's going to be like, okay, now we've put them in their place and now we can move on, that's not true. That's ridiculous. That's the first step. Now they're going to respond. They're not going to respond positively. So, you know, if you really think... So what think do you expect to happen, say, in, in Mexico? situation? Right, because you've got an election coming up, right, where someone with their own nationalist bent could win of course they will. on the heels of this. You've got China waiting in the wings, not just in Asia, but probably, you know, looking over at Latin that's America. Already, saying, I mean, that's already, been, that's already happening. Sure. The Chinese, who also, he's had things to say about that are very disrespectful, have already said we're looking to invest in Mexico. The idea that we don't need allies that it's us against the world is so dumb. That is so anti-American. It is so unproductive. The idea, we, America has been the leading nation in the world for a century. 
to give that up and tell everybody else, we're in it just for ourselves and we'll be competing with you, we'll be fighting you, we'll be trying to dominate you. How could that possibly make sense? That is the, when I described how I thought businesses should run, that is the diametric opposite and it's very stupid. Very stupid. And so we're going to see, you know, he said the Mexicans will pay for the wall. Really? That was just dumb. He, it's a good he, line during campaign season. Anyone who believed that is going to be very, very disappointed. You know, that's the kind of thing that people say who are, you know, not being realistic about the world. The way the world works is, you know, you either have trust with people. Trust is extremely valuable and precious. And you, you can't, especially today, everything's so transparent. You can't stiff 2,500 contractors and have the next person say, yeah, I'm happy to come down and uh, work on the roof. Why? You're not going to get paid. What's the best deal you ever did? I mean, the best deal I ever did was getting married. <laughs> Which, because, you know, we have four kids between 23 and 28, and that's been, the, you know, the foundation of my daily life for the last 30 years. So, in term, but, you know, was I trying to, it's a perfect example. Am I taking advantage of someone in that? No, that's a compact between human beings. Tell me how that deal came together. <laughs> my wife, you know, it's funny because my wife, I'm a Stanford grad student. My wife was a Stanford grad student and I'd seen her and I was attracted to her, but I couldn't meet her. Because? Didn't know her. So I, she was running a track workout. She was the captain of her college track team. She's sort of a middle distance runner. Also at Stanford? Uh, she went, undergrad went to Harvard. So she's, but she's a grad student at Stanford and she's running repeat miles. So you run a mile, jog a quarter. So I was walking by wearing like sneakers and shorts. And I see this woman who I've seen and I wanted to meet running it with two guys. So she's running. So I think I've never run a repeat mile in my entire life. I think, great, I'm going to do the track workout, whatever it is. So I just put down my stuff, go on the track, start running the workout with them. They, and I don't know any of them. Wow, okay. So I run like, but I was, played soccer, but right? I was in good shape. Okay, yeah. And so I run like three miles, jog a mile, and then they say, okay, we're gonna do this last mile fast. So it's jog a quarter, you know, run a mile, jog a quarter. Uh -huh. So this is our fourth mile, and they're gonna run it faster. So we get to the place in the track where you're gonna run fast. And they take off, and I, and I didn't take off. And I said to her, you know, we could go slower and talk to each other <laughs> in a desperate attempt. And she goes, we could, but it'd be a really chicken shit thing to do. <laughs> so I took off. Oh, so <laughs> it's like, I, I got the message. So I read as fast as I could and had to wait to talk to her later. <laughs> That's how I met her. How fast did you go? You know, in those days, I could run 10 sixes. So we were probably running, I mean, a fast mile in that circumstance would be around five for me. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I could run, I could go on the track at that point in a workout and run 10 sixes, you know, 10 miles in 60 minutes. Now, I asked how that deal came together, and then at the end of that story you said, and I had to wait and talk to her later. So how did that work for you? How did I get to meet her? Yeah. 
My brother is a, was going to Stanford too. So he asked her over to dinner. And, and we like, he said, I need to study with you. We've got some work that I'm, and it was a total setup. <laughs> so he had class with them. They were actually, well, it's funny. My brother and my wife and some of their friends started something called the East Palo Alto Legal Clinic. So it's for Stanford law students to go into the poorest town around and provide free legal support to residents of East Palo Alto in terms of all things, housing disputes, um, you know, problems with the government, any kind of issue they had, it was a way, it was basically doing what people in those days called poverty law, right. working with people who didn't have a lot of means but had legal problems to try and help them sort it out. Uh, and also, you know, from the, for the Stanford kids, it was a great chance for them to actually engage in the legal system and to learn about, you know, some of the issues that came through that system for, you know, citizens. And for people who don't know, despite uh, the surge in the computer business and uh, the dot-com revolution and social media, the fact that Facebook's headquarters in Menlo Park is right near East Palo Alto now, there is still that same disparity between yes. Stanford, Palo Alto, and East Palo Alto yes. and parts of Menlo Park. I've been, you know, I've been in several trips through East Palo Alto in the last couple of years and also to meet with people there. And there's still, you know, if you go down to the peninsula south of San Francisco where Stanford is and where Silicon Valley is, there's still dramatic and unfair disparities. Now I can't help but notice that this whole asking someone to dinner thing is a bit of a trend in your family as far as how these pairings work out. It seems, it seems whether friends or siblings, you guys watch out for each other. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I said to you, I like long relationships. I'm close to my, I was teasing about my two brothers before, but I'm close to my two brothers. You know, I really think I'm close to my friends from growing up. I'm close to my friends pretty much from every part of my life. It's and so for me, I really believe that, you know, relationships and valuing people and trying to stay in touch provides a lot of pleasure and also a lot of, you know, kind of sinew to my life. So I was going to ask how you ended up in San Francisco, but it sounds like uh, grad school explains it. Uh, you guys... And she, my wife is from right, right outside San Francisco. She grew up in San Mateo, which is the airport town yeah. right outside San Francisco. So you guys built a life there. How did the tech revolution that was taking place at that same time influence the way you thought about investment opportunity, the economy, uh, what the country needs to do in order to grow? Well, first of all, when you think about the tech revolution in Northern California, it started a long time before. Yeah. I got there. Right. You know, it Fair really child. started pre, oh no, even pre Fairchild, you know, it really started with HP. And if you think about that, so th it's, a, it's two guys go into a garage together, come up with a product and try and change the world. Right. That's the template. Yeah. And you think about how many more times did that happen? A lot. A lot. And so, it's a very, and if you think about the, you know, there's something called the HP way, the Hewlett Packard way, which is about flat organizations, respect for people, you know, no arrogance, 
you know, management by walking around, mm -hmm. management by walking around, a real value system about how people relate to each other. So that's something that I took a lot of interest in, pleasure in, and tried to understand well. The other thing, of course, that is true about Northern California is people are optimistic. They believe the future is going to be better. We can make the future better. That basically trying new things is something that is inherently valuable. And so rather than trying to look backwards and feel nostalgic, the idea is, no, we're going to make it, we can look forward and make it better. We can make it fairer, we can make it cleaner, we can make it healthier, we can make it more fun. Immigration and migration are a big part of that. Listen, California is a majority-minority state. You know, when we hear the idea that, you know, we're going to go back to some, you know, some time before all Americans were treated as full human beings, that is something that we just don't understand and we definitely do not agree with. Well, majority-minority doesn't even capture it, I don't think, because so many of the people who are there, whether they are ethnic minorities or they're white, migrated from somewhere else. Absolutely. You came from the East Coast to California Absolutely. in search of opportunity, right? Well, if to you, Stanford yeah. and stay. You know, the thing that's true about California is there is no concept of entitlement. Everything's so new. You know, it's always in the process of getting redone. So the idea that, you know, you're going to hang on to what you had in 1850, really? That's not, no one's thinking about that. Some the idea say, that, in social programs, there's very much a concept of entitlement. Some would argue it's a good thing. So explain, explain what you mean by that. Um, take San Francisco, for example. Services that are provide, provided to the homeless population. Um, that they are entitled to. Some people point to that and say, boy, that's why San Francisco has got uh, some of the homeless problems that it does because it doesn't manage those entitlements, if you want to call them that, correctly. So it's actually homelessness. One of the, the biggest issues in California is about housing. Right. It's, and so homelessness is part of that. It has other parts to it. But housing in California is a gigantic problem in the sense that we are creating jobs much faster than we're creating units for people to live in. And we're creating units to live in faster than we're creating units that are affordable for most people. So there is a gigantic housing issue in the coast of California especially. It goes all the way down the coast. You've got mountains on one side, we got water on the other. Yes. Uh, you've got to build up and build dense if you're going to have space for all the people, yes. but nobody wants to do it. I, th I think what you'll see, if you look, if you look at 2016 and what was on the ballot statewide and locally. So one of the things that's true about California is we have direct democracy. We have propositions to, to make laws mm -hmm. and we have local um, propositions, local called measures to pass bond bills and do specific acts. So in California, I think we supported between 15 and 20 propositions or measures that were for affordable housing, public transportation, or workers' rights. So if you think about it, California is actually rebuilding itself in a way to 
make it much more dependent on public transportation than individual cars, mm -hmm. knows it needs to build in the cities in a much more dense way and in an affordable way for people to be able to live in, and also understands that the relationship between employer and employee is out of whack and there have to be, there have to be new rules to protect workers. So when you talk about homelessness, yeah. if you actually go, and I would invite you to do this, John, come with me and go look at, at the homeless issue in a, in, a, in a Californian city and then look at what it costs to deal with it the old-fashioned way or in a much more holistic, proactive way. And what you'll see is the cost to society is much lower if, in fact, you go after it and use it and, and try and actually solve it as opposed to just react to the, to the issues and the problems that arise from it. Much cheaper for society in addition to the fact that you actually put people in a much more productive uh, position and you know, make their lives better, it's much better for everyone. Oh, I believe it. Also though, as a California resident for 13 years, I can look. Where'd you live? Lived in San Jose for all 13 years. Okay. Worked for the San Jose Mercury News and uh, a couple magazines, Fortune, one of them, and, and then CNBC. Um, I can speak with some frustration about um, Prop 13, you know, some, some things that Californians have voted in that handcuff the state as far as resources. Um, you know, you get some areas that will vote local measures to support schools that have wonderful schools, and other areas, not as much, just within a, a few exits up and down 101. Look, I think Prop 13, which passed in the 70s, was a reaction to a, a problem in California that, and it was, it caused its own very dramatic unintended consequences, including taking an enormous amount of stable revenue away from the state government that they're still reacting to, and what is it, 40 years later. So I agree with you. Direct democracy is by no means perfect. But one of the things that I would posit for you is that as much, and I would also say that, that since I've been involved, I think the propositions have actually been, by and large, overwhelmingly positive. But I would, so, but I would also say, people outside California love to rag on propositions, mostly because of Prop 13, which was the one big failure. Although you've got to realize Prop 187, which was an anti-immigration, anti-immigrant rights bill, which was thrown out by the courts, did pass in, I think, 94. So there have been others which have been negative and regressive and unfair. But what I was going to say is this. If you think for a second about the United States of America, we're moving to direct democracy. So if you think about the, res the response to the different threats and, and proposals of the, the, the current administration, it's been one of those things where the administration says something and if enough people respond quickly and fast enough, it has to stop. So the congressional Republicans' first move is to get rid of the ethics oversight of congressional Republicans and the country goes crazy, direct democracy, and they, the next day they say, oh, we never intend to do that, that was a mistake. Trump says, I'm going to put a 20% tariff on Mexican goods, which he doesn't have the right to do which is an incredibly stupid thing to say. 
Americans respond quickly and he says, oh, you know, that's just one of the ide many ideas I have. I'm floating that and it's gone. The truth of the matter is we're in a time of direct democracy in America. And, it, and, and if you think about that, that's really what's going on in a very real way is that because of, for technological reasons, as well as for political reasons, we have a citizenry which I think is becoming much more engaged, much more reactive, much more proactive, and that is actually something that has completely changed the face of democracy that no one's even talking about. But also much more reactionary and much less committed, perhaps, to the idea of there being facts on which we should base our actions. How does that confluence of changes influence the way that you're directing your efforts? Well, so I just want to make sure I respond to what you just said, which was <clears throat> a broad spread, broad spread willingness to, to suspend the importance of facts and more reactionary. So let me talk about that for a second. So clearly the people who, who are supporters of the president and the Republicans are in a fact-free zone. You know, famously alternative facts, completely crazy. I mean, you know, completely you, you couldn't make up the idea that someone would try and float the idea of lies as alternative facts. But there are a lot of people, most of the traders on this floor are hardcore, or on the floor of the New York Stock, Stock Exchange, Trump supporters. Now, when it comes to how they trade stocks, they have a very firm allegiance to facts. So, in my experience, you've never been able to solve a problem that you aren't able to tell the truth about. So the idea that we could come up with good ideas based on illusions or lies has a 0% probability of working. That has never worked. It will never work. The idea that the right way to think about the future is to try and make it like the past, that has never worked and it will never work. The idea that really what we have to do with the American economy is make it more like the 1950s, that is so dumb, it doesn't even bear being put down. No, the, the, I, you are never going, and I think that's just a completely contrary view to everything you just said. There are people doing that. It cannot end well. You cannot solve a problem that you have to lie about to describe. You cannot make the future like, why would we want to make the future like the past? If you think about American society from a, in terms of progress, you know, we started this country where way over half the people could, today couldn't be citizens. Way over half. Yeah. And the progress of American society has been to recognize those people as full human beings with full rights. That is the triumph of American history. Not where we started, but the progress right up to marriage equality that there's been a progress of accepting people fully as human beings with everything, every right. We're not doing you a favor giving you this right. You have the right to that. And That's so right. to the idea of going back, if we went back to the 1950s, you want to go back to the 19, 
Think about the good things that have happened <laughs> since 1950 in American civil society that are unbearable to think that we'd ever go back there. The, there, has been some, there has been incredible, monumental, terrific progress in American society since 1950. There will be more. We should be looking forward about how to continue that path and that trajectory, not going back down. That's crazy. All right, for some of us, the idea of you know, some long past time when things were better than they are today. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. That's so crazy. Yes, of course. And, and uh, you know, anyone who's saying that is by definition not paying attention to everybody in America, is by definition excluding people from the, from the group of people who they care about and count. And you know, that is as un, that's the most un-American thing I can think of. That is the rejection of the progress of America. That is disrespect for American law. But it's also a great disrespect for American values and the spirit that has been here that has let that progression happen for centuries and that people have fought, literally fought and died for. Now, I've tried in a few roundabout ways to get you to talk about your wealth <laughs> and how you accumulated it. And you're just not interested in talking about that. So... To, That's which, actually which not how I think about things. I, I, I know. It's, it's, it, I find it really interesting. Tell me, during the period of time when you became one of the, not just 1%, but a fraction of the 1%, how did you handle it? Well, first of all, let me say this. I didn't do this. I didn't go into the investment business as a way of, you know, trying to get rich. I wanted to make enough money. My wife and I had a very straightforward agreement. We thought we needed to save enough money to have a house, pay for health care, mm -hmm. and have a retirement once we were through working. And at what point did you, did you say, yep, we made it? Well, at some point, my wife said to me, anything you do from now on, you're only doing it because you want to do it, because now we can <laughs> afford those things. But the truth was, so how long ago was that? I Very love investing. Investing is actually really, really interesting and fun. Why? Because I love puzzles. I love figuring things out. I'm someone who really is interested in both how companies work and how industries work, and sort of the figuring out, that's like the biggest puzzle in the world of, you know, how, how do you think about a uh, Saab dealership in South Africa? It's like, okay, that's interesting. Because so many factors change depending yes. not only on the product, it's a, but on the it's, and, period, and where and are you and how much money do people have to buy Saabs and why would they buy a Saab anyway? It's really interesting. So to me, investing even now, you know, it's just, I was talking to one of my friends who's was born in the PRC in the People's Republic of China, came here to go to college, went to Middlebury, went to Harvard Business School and is an investor now, lives half the time in China, half the time in the US. And it's just interesting, you know, to see him talk about, yeah, he was telling me yesterday that healthcare is five and a half percent of the Chinese economy. It's 17% of the American economy. And he was telling me, okay, these are the services we don't have. This is the way services get allocated. Here is how a doctor 
works in China. You know, this is the contract he has with the hospital. And the, by the way, the hospital is owned by a state-owned organization, Enterprise. So it's like there are all, and you think, okay, there are 1.4 billion Chinese people who need healthcare, who want healthcare because healthcare lets you live. They have huge air, air problems. You know, they have absolutely foul air. So it's just interesting. So investing is really interesting. And, you know, we're, I'm someone, look, I played sports my whole life. It's competitive. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to feel like I know how to do this. I'm doing it well. I was not doing it sitting there saying cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. I was saying I do need to have, I need to save enough money to be safe in my mind, to have our family be, you know, be able to do the things. But we've always said, my parents did the exact same thing. My parents' deal with us was, we'll take care of you through school, then you get nothing. You're on your own, good luck. If you've gotten a good education, you can take care of yourself. And that was the deal we had with our kids. That's the deal you have with your kids? When you get through with school, good luck. You've had a good education. You can take care of yourselves. When did you tell them that? Five. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like you got to know. You get. You are. You are going to have an opportunity to get an American education, and you should take it really seriously because you're going to have to take care of yourself. So, figure. You don't screw around. You have to learn this stuff. So they weren't surprised when you pledged to no. give away. No. No. I, I honestly thought that was a pledge that was important to make to support the idea that people who'd been really lucky were not separate from society and were not in it for themselves. That the society, you know, the, the society moves together. We have a huge inequality problem. The idea that we will succeed as a society with the majority of people not succeeding is wrong. And it's not, it's, it's, it won't work, but it's also unjust. And so part the, the reason we were happy to make that pledge was not because it was going to change our behavior and not because we wanted credit for it, but we thought that it was important that society understand that these kind of inequalities have to be met with response. If you're that lucky, you better be that responsible. Because if you don't, there's really no excuse for the society to work this way. And, and I, I still don't think there is an excuse, but it's a, a, a statement that those people know how fortunate they are and know they don't deserve it and know they have a responsibility to make sure that they're not creaming all that money. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and you are certainly putting a lot of resources behind uh, your ideals and your ideas. Tom, thank you. John, thank you. My thanks to Tom Steyer. I'm John Fort from CNBC and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.